Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Rob Saroyan on the show. Rob is the president of the Valley Children's Foundation and the Guilds of Valley Children's. Rob has worked with multiple governors and has served as the Director of Development at Fresno State. This was a fascinating conversation where we cover topics like philanthropy, development, Armenian food, and much more. Let's go meet Rob and Baker will take us there. Music shows some respect to the best little city left in the U.S. Fresno's best. Fresno's best. Uh, Rob, where do you like to eat in Fresno? That's the toughest question ever. I was looking at the list of questions, and that's a challenge for me because I'm such a foodie. Um, I enjoy everything. Um, but you will likely catch me at AJ's, Armenian cuisine. Um, that's soul food for me. Uh, but I'll, I'll certainly frequent places in town, sushi. Uh, there's so many good. Uh, Restaurants now in Fresno, and there's some great um, restaurant tours that uh, have taken the initiative to um, really invest and bring um, great food to, to our community. So I I'm excited when I get to go out. When it, you know, especially you know during the pandemic, it's been it's been challenging, but fortunately, some of my favorite places have uh, offered takeout, and uh, and then of course when the when we go to a different tier, we could, on a limited basis, um, actually physically go to the restaurant and enjoy the meal there. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't know if that answers your question. Um, I'm because I don't like necessarily one over the other. I, I'm just a foodie, and and I'll try anything, um, and I'll go every part of Fresno. There's not one part of our community that I won't um, meander to and and enjoy something, ethnic foods in general, you know, I, and all the way up to some of the nouveau, more hipster stuff that's being done on the modern level. I, I just like, I like people who really invest in what they're doing relative to preparing the meal. And it reflects uh, in the presentation. It reflects, of course, in the quality and the taste. So um, it's uh, my, one of my favorite pastimes. Yeah, so for for me during pandemic, uh, a lot of the food that's been to go has been great. And um, we'll talk more about Armenian food in a little while. But for me, getting Ark to go, which is on Champlain and uh, Cedar or Perrin or something like that, or Shepherd and wherever that little neighborhood is over there yeah. by the Vons. Uh, I think it transitioned from Cedar to Champlain right at that signal. So Yes, that, that food has been recommended to me. Um, when, as soon as I got to town and I just, their, their kebab plates just wreck me. And like, when I do those for lunch, like it's, I mean, it's great, but it's game over because I can't stop eating. I can't stop. It's the pilaf. It's the, it's the, it's the meat. It's, you know, and they just, the, how they cook their, uh, beef kebab is just, I don't even know what they're doing, but it's Uh, like, it's magic. It's magic back there. Yeah, sure is. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up the art here. They do a wonderful job and they do have that, that secret sauce and they know how to make it work well, you know, and I think they opened up another location in Clovis someplace too. Yeah. You know, that garlic sauce is really hard to replicate. I have tried 
to make that white garlic sauce at home, it it's it's just impossible. It's impossible to do it right. And I, it's like, and I asked somebody, a friend of mine um, who's been to Yerevan uh, quite a few times, and like how to replicate it. And she was like, Oh yeah, you go to Armenia and then learn, <laughs> which uh-huh. is a, a very impractical way to learn how to make a sauce. But uh, nonetheless, I uh, well, I'm addicted. Yeah, I, I think that invitation to go would would serve you. Um, beyond the garlic sauce um and i think you really enjoy it um based on what i know uh about what you do and your interests i think it would be a very uh fulfilling experience it's uh and they're very hot the hospitality there is second to none um and they enjoy when you know non-armenians visit they really roll out the red carpet um and it's uh, a great experience. I've been four times. In fact, I was going on my fifth trip, but the pandemic again uh, changed those plans. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting place, and we can talk about Armenia, but just where it's located, and obviously the history with you know Russia and the Soviet Union. It's such an interesting uh, kind of like centerpiece in that area of the world. Um, and just has so much history in it. Yeah, I would totally uh, love to take a trip and uh, have definitely been invited, um, but it just hasn't hasn't happened yet, hasn't materialized yet. I, however, when I was living in Los Angeles, sometimes in Burbank, I thought I was in Armenia. <laughs> you know, it, it definitely felt that way. Yeah, um, no doubt. So um, let's talk about fundraising, which I'm very interested in uh, as a topic. Um, you know, f- fundraising... Uh, it makes a lot of the things, the institutions that keep our society together go. Um, and I don't think people understand the layer of fundraising, um, particularly in medicine and in hospitals, how important it is. Um, and so I, but I don't know if people, you know, people go to college to become lawyers and doctors, but people don't really go to college to become fundraisers. <laughs> you know, that's not a, it's not a major, you know, that yeah. you, that you would get. So I, I guess my question is um, if, if there's not really a, a, a set study plan for becoming a fundraiser and you are, you know, hiring potential fundraisers, what are, what are for you attributes or predictors of someone being a successful fundraiser? So an excellent question. And you're absolutely right, Jordan. It's, you don't necessarily go uh, to school and minor in fundraising, or as we call it, philanthropy. But there are some fundamental, um, really, skill sets that um, make a good fundraiser. And I think, not unlike other professions, um, you know, integrity, uh, understanding the value of a relationship, being a self-motivator, um, building that trust, that bridge of trust with the folks that you work with, and um, just having that that ambition to uh, really um, collectively uh, support the mission you're representing. So it's a mission. It's a mission. Really, a mission-based profession. Yeah. There's something behind it, and it's inviting people to be a part of something really special from that standpoint. So when I'm chatting with people and they express interest in being a fundraiser uh it's not always about the events and 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 a lot of people might have um misunderstanding at times and it's not because 
not a malicious misunderstanding. I think they see the glamour side of, of fundraising at an event, but there's a lot behind it. Uh, there's a lot of um, structure behind it. And the margin of error in our business is, is really slim because people give because they believe they have a passion for something. And as custodians of their philanthropy, we have a duty um, to not only be transparent, but to ensure their investment in that mission is going to work and being good stewards of their investment. So fundamentally, it's similar to other professions out there, but it's unique in that um, we're asking people to invest in a cause and a cause that is going to produce this. It's not a material material return on that investment. Rather, you're making a huge impact and difference in somebody's life, uh, in an institution's life that serves others. And that's ultimately what it's all about. Um, Which I, distinguishes it maybe from sales, more traditional sales yeah. jobs where, you know, if I'm selling you a car, you know, we're, 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 we're trying to meet in some, some kind of middle uh, so you can get some asset. There's a clear exchange yeah. or whatever. Whereas, you know, I, I guess maybe when you're donating and you're putting stuff in like a targeted fund or something and you're yeah. expecting to see, you're endowing a chair at a university, right. like you're, you're seeing something specific. But if you're really giving in a big way, you're kind of trusting an institution to try to realize something. So I think um, something that really reflects um, our, our operating philosophy relative to philanthropy is uh, our goal. Our goal is to be the most trusted philanthropic organization in the region. It, it's not to raise the most money, but to be the most trusted. That's the active ingredient in what we do. So if we could build trust with our donors, we feel like they'll be very confident in what we're doing and they'll continue to give and invite others to, to, to give as well. And that's the best referral we could ever um, ask for, essentially. Yeah. So, so uh, someone, someone in your industry, how do you look at kind of these uh, corporations that are incorporating like social welfare promises, you know, like, I mean, the famous one originally was Tom's shoes, right? You buy a pair of Tom's shoes and they yeah. give a pair of shoes to a kid in another country or whatever. But there's a lot of companies that are trying to have this ethical dimension uh, sure. to their business model. How, how do you look at that as someone that does philanthropy? I think that's that, so, that, that social responsibility of corporate responsibility, being a good corporate citizen in this case is admirable and, you know, and it's altruistic and, uh, the motivation is to improve the lives of others. And how can you not uh, want to support that approach? It's not a heavy handed uh, attempt to gain favor for personal business purposes. Rather, it's improving the lives of the community they might be in or beyond. And uh, that pays dividends in, in, in measurable ways. Um, but if your motive is to gain something um, material out of it, um, that's probably not the right thing to do. And most organizations would um, probably, uh, in a polite way, respectfully say, no thanks. Right. You know, there's, I, I had this uh, conversation recently um, 
with uh, Lindsay uh, Callahan, who runs uh, the UFW or the United Way for Fresno and Madeira. And we were talking about um, kind of these uh, groups that have organized around a giving well, you know, there's a website called give well, where they analyze charities and different philanthropic groups to kind of see their efficacy. So you kind of, um, you know, can, can measure how efficacious every single dollar you're donating is. How do you view uh, those groups and the way they look at uh, charities and organizations? Do you think that's the right mindset in order to uh, try to decide where to give money? Well, Again, a great question. I we welcome that outside review. In fact, um, we post a seal on our website. You might have noticed it from GuideStar, which is a organization, third-party organization that um, analyzes um, foundations and not 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 nonprofits and does their own kind of um, audit of how the operation works and. And I'm very um, pleased to say that they've um, rated us at a platinum level, which is the very top level you could achieve for transparency. And I think that really weighs heavy with um, a number of um, more, I think, larger institutions that consider um, many important endeavors, but when they rate one, they'll go to a rating agency like that and chuck us out, essentially. You know, and so we welcome um, we welcome that kind of review. Um, that that's very important to us. Uh, that's a standard that we want to maintain. It demonstrates um, that efficacy that you're talking about, and goes beyond in terms of transparency. That's very important to us. Yeah. One second. I just. Sorry, I've had, I've had more distractions in this podcast than anything I've recorded recently. There's dogs running around. Um, my apologies. So, yeah, I, 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 I asked that question ultimately because, you know, there's this, um, there's this kind of movement in the world of technology to make things more efficient. Um, mm-hmm. And kind of this idea that the lower amount of overhead a philanthropic group has um, it, that's a virtue in some way that you want to reduce that level of overhead. I don't know if you can really um, rate organizations by their overhead or efficiency of spending because there's so many different factors that go into um, making medical discoveries, for example, or providing you know, better care for people. Or, you know, these are like subjective. Uh, there, I mean, you know, there's, there's ways to evaluate things with numbers and then there's ways that you can only evaluate it qualitatively. Right. And so, and so I'm skeptical personally of that framework for looking at, uh, you know, philanthropic works just at the bottom line of someone that's worked in the nonprofit world and worked in the education world. It's really hard to measure efficacy sometimes. Yeah, you know, you bring up another excellent point. Um, are you sure you're not a fundraiser? <laughs> um, I'm just very interested. <laughs> no, I, I, uh, and you're not alone in that perspective. Um, there's an emerging, emerging uh, thought, a process, and there are plenty of advocates that say, you know, it is the qualitative impact. This 
this organization is making and and coming up with the metric to demonstrate its value um formulating that is is we're compelled to do because um the ratio uh between the dollar raised and the, and, and the money spent to raise that dollar fluctuates and ultimately it's up to the you know the the the, the real decision maker in, in all of this is the donor um it goes back to transparency the donor has every kind of access to know how much it costs for us to raise that dollar and then they could make an informed decision about whether they want to support the organization because it's you know, X leads to Y, the result is Z. Uh, and that Z becomes the compelling reason for somebody giving. Now they might say, hey, you're spending too much to make that impact. I'm not willing to invest in a heavier administrative burden. That's up to the donor. Right. You know, so but how can you how can you even I mean not to be skeptical of this quote unquote donor, because I'm sure donors, <laughs> as you know, they probably think they know best about everything, but how, how would you, how would you ever know um, what it costs to produce, you know, you know, if we're talking factories, a widget, unless you're familiar and get knee deep in the factory itself or the organization itself. Um, and, you know, because, and that's the problem with having these, I think, broad, uh, uh, kind of a rubric for what's a what's a good amount of administrative overhead, right? Because different groups require different things, right? Right. No, and I I, I completely um, understand the perspective. We live in a culture that has been um, accustomed to raising a dollar a certain way and squeezing that administrative cost to a point where at times it it precludes the organization from achieving that ultimate goal. So I'm glad, I'm glad that um, our country is now taking another fresh look at things, recognizing that the return on, on the buck is pretty significant compared to a for-profit industry. You know, you live off, if you could live off a 10 to 12 to 15% margin, that's pretty significant in the for-profit. Now, again, you're getting, an, there's a different kind of material asset return, but compared to what we do in philanthropy, you know, the expectation is that we're gonna be in the teens in terms of administrative costs. Right. Uh, um, but it, the discussion is ongoing. I've been to a couple of conferences where we've had guest speakers that come in and talk on this very subject. And if I could recollect, I'll get you um, a very articulate um, speaker that uh, spoke on this topic and was essentially preaching to the choir <laughs> at the time, translating that to our um, leadership and the donor community is a whole different challenge for us. Right. Um, but it's something that we're conscientious of nonetheless. And our, our practice isn't to spend the money for the sake of spending, spending it. We always look at the, in our case, ROI's return, return on the impact. What kind of impact can we create out of this investment? So we're 
always taking a critical look at that and, and we're doing our business planning, we say, hey, if we're gonna move in this direction and, and start investing in this initiative, we're expecting this in return and this outcome to happen. So um, I think the evolution of philanthropy will get to a point where um, that metric won't be as, I'm not gonna say important, but it will be, it'll be a little more flexible and understanding because of the impact that investment makes. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about administration. Um, earlier on in your career, you had a chance to work uh, at the state government level. What, uh, what lessons, what were some of the lessons that you took away from working uh, in government like that? Um, and what did you learn about administration uh, with the two governors that you uh, worked with? Yeah, so I, I had a golden opportunity to work in uh, mostly in Governor Duke Majin's administration. And then I had the privilege of working for a little bit of time in Governor uh, Wilson's administration. Um, I had a unique role there um, that gave me an opportunity as a junior staffer at the time um, to see and see how leadership at the state level operates and um, and what leads them, you know, in terms of philosophy and behavior, um, diplomacy. Um, Governor Duke Majin unequivocally is a man of great integrity. And you talk about ethics, that led him. Um, his decisions were always based on what's in the best interest of the people I represent, the people of California. That made a strong impression on me. You know, he served that service to his state, his community made a strong impression on me. It's not, um, for him, it wasn't an ego trip. It wasn't how, you know, can I be the most popular governor in the history of California? Incidentally, he, I think at some point his popularity, although he despised that 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 metric, <laughs> that wasn't important to him. What was important to him was what's in the best interest of California, not today, but in the future. How are we going to um, make decisions now that are going to affect generations ahead? And that that kind of vision and foresight really is something that the state deserves regardless of who it is but embracing that philosophy i think is it, it bodes well for uh, the future and future generations yeah so how 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 did how, how does that experience um working for those uh, two guys uh, kind of inform how you're seeing uh gavin newsom is is weathering this storm <laughs> It, it's it's tough. Um, it's tough to govern over uh, a state like California um, between the initiative process and um, an active legislature, full time legislature. Uh, it's a it's a real challenge for anybody in that position. And I, um, you know, at one point in my life, I had aspirations for you know, to run for office, and after that experience and. Sacramento and then subsequent um, um, administrations and, and seeing what's going on in Sacramento. It's, it's a it's a real tough place to be. 
you know, and I admire people who choose to pursue a, 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 a career in public service because it's essential, you know, and so I'm careful not to um, get too excited about what's going on uh, because I, I can only imagine what it is to be in somebody's seat. Um, we have a, a lot of bright people that uh, I think uh, have strong passion for what they're doing. I just hope we could find consensus and, um, and and get to a point where we're making decisions like George Dugmajan made decisions. Right. Like Pete Wilson wanted to make decisions. So I got a chance to see uh, Governor Dugmajan in those uh, moments when the camera wasn't on. And I saw uh, a person of great character and integrity and that made a big, big influence on me. Yeah. Um, we're going to go to a section that I call overrated versus underrated, where I throw out a few topics at you and you can either tell me if you think they're overrated or underrated and why. Uh, sometimes people use the properly rated uh, category to not take in a stand on a particular thing that they just don't care to. Um, or just you can pass. Um, so the first one is uh, the Coliseum at USC, overrated or underrated as a sports oh. arena. That's 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 the. I mean, that's legendary. So. Um, so underrated. I okay. If that if that is defined the context of underrated, yes. Yeah. Why is it legendary? Well, that was the uh, place where the Olympics were once upon a time. Then, of course, it's all of USC. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. Yeah. Yeah. Fight on. And, and watching, uh, getting to watch a Rams game there once. And right. Right. In, I mean, I've been to USC football games, too. Um, it's kind of an old stadium. You know, I mean, you definitely don't have the same, quote unquote, amenities, but you definitely feel the history in ways sure. that you don't at more kind of, you know, the new lavish uh, stadiums that exist out there. Well, they, I know they recently um, made a sizable investment to renovate um, parts of it. It's so big. I mean, there some advocated, you know, tearing it down and rebuilding, but, you know, it, the history, uh, the tradition, um, I know they built new um, sky suites and some different seating arrangements and put some significant dollars into improving um, parts of this parts of the facility. So um, it's it's you know being in an exhibition park is an experience. And I think um, is it um, George Lucas is um, building a um, big museum there too. I think he. I think it's a significant amount of money to build this um, spectacular museum. And that just adds value to the whole experience on, on campus there. It's a, it's a wild place. I mean, it's such an interesting, um, I had a cousin from the East Coast that went to graduate school there. And when she moved there, she was just like, this is wild world. I mean, you're in the middle of, uh, you know, downtown LA. Uh, there's wild, you know, somewhat scary neighborhoods to people that are not from Los Angeles. And then you have this like Disneyland of a campus. Um, yeah. And then you have the football culture. It's such a, USC is such an interesting thing. And when you compare it to, uh, you know, the 
campus of UCLA out there. You know, it's for me, USC is so much more exciting because it's right in the middle there. It's in the middle of everything. Yeah. You know, uh, it's got so much USC has got so much culture, so much diversity. Uh, they really do a good job of embracing the neighborhoods and they're doing more, in fact, to integrate the neighborhoods uh, into the campus uh, life. Um, it's always been a, a big priority for the administration there. And they're doing more of it now, which is great. It just improves the overall quality of life for that community, the surrounding community. And uh, it's a special place. Yeah. All right. The next one is one I ask a lot of people on this show um, because it's it's just it's one of those things about Fresno when I moved here. Uh, me and Ed's Pizza, overrated or underrated? Uh, that's, a, that's another institution in our community. So I'd say underrated. Underrated. Okay. Why is it underrated? Well, I think um, it's a it's a good pizza. You know, it's a, it's a good, very well prepared, the very best ingredients. Um, um, I know a little bit more about it. I might be a little biased about Communed Pizza. I know the folks that supply the ingredients to uh, to uh, Communed's, and I, I know the Communed's uh, owners. I think it's, but I I would eat that pizza anytime it's offered, uh, <laughs> or I would go buy it on a on a on a day that I'm craving pizza. Yep. I'm in the same page. And I wasn't there when I first moved here. I was skeptical of it. Um, I had a good pizza place in Southern California that kind of did the big New York style pizza. And I looked at Minez and I was like, what is this exactly? But uh, the more you eat it, it's kind of like Fresno. The more you eat it, the more you love it. Um, <laughs> so uh, the next one is kind of back to the fundraising question. Uh, uh, overrated or underrated? Uh, telethons as a way to fundraise. Great question. I would say underrated because of the um, the the advancements in technology have created a new platform for us to leverage telethons a little differently than the old traditional ways of doing it, um, and that's exciting. Uh, that's exciting. Um, the old days of Jerry Lewis. Um, maybe are a little different now, but there, there's potential, huge potential and opportunity to um, develop that platform using technology. Yeah. So I'd say underrated. Underrated. Um, another one on the uh, kind of fundraising aspect, um, uh, sustaining, and this is not really an underrated versus overrated, it's more just uh, thinking about these two things. Um, how do you think about the, you know, I don't want to say the efficacy, but um, the differences between uh, sustaining gifts and one-time major gifts? I know that uh, some people get into long-term relationships and, you know, there's different uh, groups around the Valley that kind of take, think about this in different ways. You know, like I uh, contribute to uh our, our local public radio station and they're trying to, you know, they, they're, they're dependent on those smaller donors. And so they uh, try to get people in kind of the sustaining donor role. Um, but how do you think about sustaining uh, contributions versus uh, one-time big gifts? They're all very important to us. Um, one-time big gifts generally 
um, happen are preceded by smaller gifts. And so um, we value every gift that comes in. Um, we try to steward that gift relationship and and allow it to blossom over time. And and, and at, at you know at some point we might have an opportunity to turn that that gift into a large gift. And sustaining that relationship is vital to our success. Um, we don't look for that one gift wonder and then move on. We we want to cement the relationship with the donor and continue to steward that relationship without the expectation that they're going to do anything more. The expectation is, can we earn the relationship? Can we sustain it? Can we continue to demonstrate how that, that investment has made a huge impact in achieving that margin of excellence that we talked about? You know, the more we do that, there's nothing like it. You know, we're, we're convinced that there's nothing material you could buy that compares to helping others and getting that sense of fulfillment. You have an appetite for material, you go out and buy things and buy things. That appetite never goes away, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the next, the next nicest thing out there. I'm a big audiovisual person. I love great, I love music, you know, and so can I go acquire a new piece of equipment that's going to improve my listening experience? You juxtapose that with, I just made a contribution to my church. I just made a contribution to Valley Children's and I see how that's impacting that child. And um, that's like inexplicable. You know, it's, it just makes you feel so good. And that's what the environment we try to create here is matching that donor with, as you mentioned earlier, to the program that they are very interested in and allowing that donor to experience it firsthand will sustain that relationship. We grow the relationship in that service line so they see it firsthand and they understand it. And um, that's the real magic uh, behind it all. Okay. Um, the next one is uh, a, it, it, the environment. So the bluffs uh, where Children's is situated overlooking the San Joaquin. Is that area of town over or underrated? Underrated. Yeah. Um, just because it's uh, the, the castle on the hill, uh, the kids call it. And um, it's the potential for us to grow that campus and be more integrated um is ahead of us we're doing our master planning now updating our master plan and, and in the future the community will see some really cool things develop on our main campus so we are a very comprehensive healthcare delivery system and um, be, beyond the four walls of the hospital we'll be doing other things on campus to ensure um, that every child has access to the best, whether it's an outpatient or inpatient need. Got it. Uh, last one, um, the concept of ethical fundraising. Is that over or underrated in uh, philanthropy circles? I think I'm batting underrated down your list. Um, yeah. You know, 
that's something that a standard that we're always striving to achieve mm -hmm. because that's the expectation of our professional organization. Um, not, not only in fundraising, but in the delivery of care. Um, if, if we fail at doing that, then we're failing the people we serve, you know? So um, it's vital for us to maintain a high degree of ethical um, standing and, um, and acknowledge the things that we don't do well and try to improve on them. Yeah. You know, so uh, practice that, that standard, embrace the philosophy and uh, allow it to thrive in the environment that we work in. Yeah, I mean, it's transparency, work. right? It's, it's at its yeah. core, being transparent yeah. with people. And I think, you know, there there's obviously downsides to too much transparency, but I think in the modern world, we just have to take it as an assumption that uh, we need to be transparent. And, and I think that it is maybe transparency is a little overrated at times. Maybe that's an overrated yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. element. It's defining it correctly and then embracing it, uh, implementing it and honoring it over time. Yeah. Well, um, I want to talk a little bit about um, the role that philanthropy pay, plays in modern hospitals and specifically in Valley Children's. Um, I, I, I don't know if people know kind of the degree of importance that philanthropy has um, and the role it plays. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how important philanthropy is for the functioning of uh, big big hospitals and specifically uh, Valley Children's? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question. Um, and it allows us to kind of focus on why philanthropy is so vital to the mission of the hospital. Unlike other businesses or organizations, um, the, the hospital tries to keep the cost of care down for, for obvious reasons. We're not trying to make a, a, a large profit and then take those earnings and um, enrich others. The, the modest profit we make at the, at the bedside, at the operation is reinvested in, in the organization to ensure that we could um, continue this mission and, and allow access to, to every child that needs it. Now, beyond that, incremental to that, is where philanthropy plays a vital role. So in order for us uh, to, to keep the lights on, to, to pay our bills, to ensure we have a dynamite workforce, great providers, that, that margin made through operation uh, helps us get to that level. Now, when you talk about that next level of creating new programs, um, supporting programs that are not reimbursable. In other words, insurance doesn't cover, government reimbursement doesn't happen. Philanthropy plays a key role there in closing the gap. 
that margin of excellence that we've talked about, allowing our providers and workforce to do those extra things to keep us at the leading edge is where philanthropy plays a key role. If we want to build a new building, because it's really important to, because we're going to house this, these couple programs that are going to provide this excellent service, that capital will be um, raised in part by philanthropy. So there are a myriad of reasons why philanthropy uh, is essential to a not-for-profit hospital system. And I think I highlighted some of the key ones um, that are important to us here locally. The benefit here is people understand that more so, particularly at a children's hospital. Um, every child that we serve doesn't necessarily want to be here. Every child we serve didn't make a decision say, hey, hey, mom, dad, hey, mom, let's go to Valley Children's today because I decided to hurt myself. No, it's because, unfortunately, kids get injured and they get sick. And we want to ensure that they are, have access to the very best to get them out of here or get them well, get them to being kids again, healthy. Right. That generation is crucial to our future community, and it's our we are we take great pride and responsibility in, in, in providing that service to those kids that need us. Yeah, I forget who said that line about you know you can judge a society by how they treat their young, their old, and their sick, or something along those lines. But I think that really uh, speaks to you know. How we need to look at these institutions, and I, you know, it's so really what you're saying is that uh, for the, you know, the kind of the costs are, and you know, it, you need philanthropy in order to make those next steps uh, yeah. in development and growth uh, to to serve more people um, because you want you you want in in some degree. Uh, unlike other industries, you want high costs, higher costs, right? Because you want better doctors, you want better equipment, because you're going to get better outcomes. Um, and it, and that makes it complicated to grow. Yeah, it does. And, it, and, the, and everybody knows the cost of healthcare is, is exorbitant. You know, it's, right. uh, it's not uh, most um, affordable thing, unfortunately, but we're trying to keep it uh, at a at a um, level where um, we're being very frugal about how we spend money right. um, and ensuring that we uh, spend it in the right places, and then the organization comes to its foundation and says, "Hey, we'd like to do this. Can you maybe match a donor to this initiative?" and and that's the role we play. And, Valley Children's, of course, we cover more geography as a standalone children's hospital than any other. So we cover more of the state. So we see um, in our catchment area, our service area, you know, we see close to 2 million, um, well, within uh, a population of 2 million uh, kids. Right. You know, so having an institution that that they could depend on, that doesn't necessarily mean they won't go to a different children's hospital, just that in, in their region, there's something they could turn to that's the very best. Right. So um, two more questions. Um, 
the first is uh, where where do you uh, where do you hope uh, or where do you see uh, what are your goals for the foundation um, in the next five to ten years? What are the what are the kind of the the big picture things that uh, you hope to realize uh, with your time there? So our goal is to continue to raise the profile and, and raise the necessary funds to align with the overall uh, vision and goal of Valley Children's, uh, whether it's expansion of a program or expansion of a building. Um, our goal, our organizational goal, is to be the very best at what we do. And uh, that costs money, of course. Yeah. And that's what makes it exciting for a donor is that they can be an integral part of that. They can be a partner in helping us achieve. Um, we earn some, I think, very important trophies. I'm not always seeking a trophy unless it's a meaningful one. Right. Um, and, and that's no real commentary other than I want to be selective about the trophy I pursue, right? And so a trophy important to us, there are a couple of them. Um, Leapfrog um, is a or third party organization that comes in and does a thorough, um, thorough uh, evaluation of how we're measuring up and some key indicators, quality indicators, safety indicators. And we rate among the best. U.S. News and World Report uh, came in and identified key service lines as very top performing. Uh, and then our magnet award uh, essentially says that we have one of the best nursing uh, teams around. And there's not many of them. So uh, there are a lot of trophies on the shelf, but the ones that really are important to us are there's a direct correlation to uh, the quality of care it provides at each bed side or in our clinical uh, space. Yeah. Um, to close, uh, what are what are um, are there any books that you'd recommend to listeners that have been important to you? Um, recently, well, it hasn't been recently. I did read The Gambler um, by Hempel. Is a is a journalist with the LA Times, former journalist, I think, with the LA Times, but he wrote about a native son, Kirk Kikorian, um, and his journey through life and becoming one of the greatest um, business negotiators. Um, you know, I, I kind of like the native son, native daughter um, story. Um, and it's an excellent book about how he took a risk in uh, his journey through life and end up being one of the wealthiest business people in the country. And philanthropy was a big part of his life. American philanthropy is, is something the world um, uh, admires and we lead the world in philanthropy. And that's something to be really proud of as Americans. Um, we talk a little bit about Armenian cuisine um, if I could just jump over to one other part of my Armenian heritage, it was philanthropy that ultimately saved um, hundreds of thousands of orphans during the genocide. It was a Near East organization that was created by American uh, business people and clergy that raised 
billions of dollars that would be equivalent to, I think somebody said close to $2 billion today that ultimately saved the lives of all these orphans. And so it's, you know, that's one example of American, American value of philanthropy and what it's done to change the world for the better. And there's, there's, you know, iconic figures now that we read about um, that have the wealth to make a difference and, and demonstrate the value of philanthropy, not only on a local, national, but on a global level. And it's exciting to see that as somebody who works in that profession. The gambler is one, and then uh, one of the Covey, uh, Stephen Covey, the son, um, not the father, uh, wrote a book called The Speed of Trust. And it's an excellent book that demonstrates what we talked about earlier is trust. What does it mean? How does it, the practical uh, application of trust in business, in this case, and relationships. The speed of trust allows you to make decisions and move forward without bringing in a forensic accountant on a deal. Right. You know, because you trust the person you're working with. That doesn't mean it's a perfect way of doing business. That means it's the best way of doing business. You yeah. could achieve that trust with somebody. There's no limit to the potential it has in, in uh, creating a positive outcome, a lasting one. Yeah, I think um, I think sometimes we we get too latched on to those like business, like how to hack business, the four hour work week, the what's the most efficient way to do something. Whereas I think those like building those strong like integrity and virtues um, and, and building trust and building relationships. I think, you know, doing that has such a bigger impact than any new gimmick or app or way to, you know, hiring out your secretary to Thailand or something, you know, all these gimmicks, uh, they don't replace those kind of core attributes that you need yeah. uh, to be successful. I think you bring up an excellent point. It's foundational to who, we aspire to be and i'd love to bring back although this may not be a popular thing during the pandemic i but symbolically i'd love to bring back the handshake deal you know you shake that hand with whoever it is and um you tell him or her that this is the deal and they both say yes and that that would be awesome i i could only my family tells stories about the family business and and how everything was on a handshake and um i want to i'd love to bring that back now not literally but you understand the yeah context by which i'm saying this and i think that would improve our lifestyle our quality of life immensely yeah absolutely might um, be it might put some people out of business but they're talented enough to go do find something else to do i don't know absolutely <laughs> Um, so where can people find out more uh, about your work, the foundation, and how can they how can they contribute? Oh, I, I appreciate you saying that, Jordan. Um, they're always welcome to call us here at um, at uh, Valley Children's, or they could log online and um, go to um, valleychildrens.org um, backslash. I think it's a backslash. Generally, it's a backslash, right? Right. Foundation, and um, they could learn a bit, little bit more about us um, here at, at Valley Children's. But we we like to talk to people. That's uh, something we enjoy doing. Uh, the phone number here is three five three seventy one hundred, and uh, 
whoever answers the phone will be a warm, inviting voice, <laughs> whether it's me or anybody on the team here. Um, and uh, we welcome a chance to talk to you about fulfilling your uh, philanthropic dreams too. Okay, final question uh, before I let you go. Uh, next time at, I'm at AJ's, what should I order? Oh, great question. Depends on what day you choose to go. Every oh, day, wh why does it depend on the day? Because, well, you have the standard menu there, okay? And it's all good, right? Um, but every day there's something special he makes. And um, it, it's a treat to experience it all. But um, I'm a big fan of um, Dolma. Stuffed, uh, you know, stuffed, uh, whether it's grape leaves or uh, uh, cabbage or or bell pepper, red pepper. I like it, red pepper. A red pepper, stuffed red pepper is delicious. He does an excellent job of it, you know, and, and um, it's uh, a real treat. And then the, the green uh, bean stew is delicious, too, that they cook up there. So it's good. Good, good soul food. Yeah, they're on my list. Thanks, Rob. I appreciate it. Thank you. Jordan. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.